0: Good evening. Settle down. Good evening. Welcome to the first lecture in week three of 1980, 1989's Rare Book School. Just a, a few messages for those of you who are Rare Book School students. First of all, I um, be aware that we have a message board, the Rare Book School message board, which is right outside of room 522. And um, people calling from the outside world will leave messages with us, which we will post there. You may also leave messages for your um, um, fellow students, too. And there's also other information posted there, such as the name and times of the uh, videos and films, which we'll be showing later in the week. So please have a look at that every time you come to and from break. Also, Butler Library opens at 9, and even though the front doors are open at at 8 o'clock, that is to allow Rare Book School and Butler Library staff to come in and prepare for for the day. Um, There's no coffee before 9, there's no Danish before 9, there's no Rare Book School fun before 9, so come only after 9 o'clock. We try to keep a high security profile at Rare Book School, so when you leave uh, the room for breaks and for um, lunch and at the end of the day, please, the last one in the room, close the door. We've had uh, very good success with this for seven years, but that's because we keep vigilant and we need your cooperation. Also, um, keep the windows closed, too. Who knows what will fly in? Tomorrow's lecture uh, will be by Paul Needham, curator of printed books at the Pierpont Morgan Library, and James Thomas uh, from the Virginia from Virginia Polytechnic. Uh, Paul Needham is teaching a course in Rare Book School week three, and uh, James Thomas is a student. And uh, the title of their talk: Early Printing in Bamberg a new discovery uh, last year at, uh, during summer at rare book school 1988 Terry Bellinger said to me next year I'm going on sabbatical and you will run rare book school I will be I said, please, please. <laughs> I don't recall that <laughs> he said I will be 3,000 miles away, call that. Um, Probably as an enticement to get me to agree to do it. Uh, Terry Bellinger is very much here with us this year um, and is giving a series of four lectures entitled Ourselves Ourselves Observed, Education for Rare Books with Bells and Whistles. Uh, This is uh, part three, And by the end of this evening, you will certainly know what bells and whistles are. Terry Bellinger.
1: Thank you. My theme in this series of lectures has been education for rare books. In my first lecture, I described some of the external forces encouraging the development of rare book librarianship in this country in the 20th century. In my second lecture, I spoke about rare book schools in general and the Columbia Rare Book School in particular. This, the third or four lectures in this series, is a meditation on the actual teaching of rare books. It partially repeats a section of my first lecture So those of you who are returnees will have an opportunity for a short nap in about 15 minutes. As you know, indeed, as you know over and over if my publicity machine has been functioning properly, the Book Arts Press is the bibliographical laboratory of the rare book program of the Columbia University School of Library Service. Last week I spoke about the press's file of about 6,000 prints, useful teaching examples of illustration processes which for the most part consist of rejects and failures deaccessioned from other more fastidious collections. Woodcuts of medieval cities and engravings of French roses and etchings of scenes of war and lithographs of parrots and maps of utopia are or can be very expensive. Woodcuts of watercress and etchings of machine parts engravings of Bible stories, lithographs of Polish military figures, and wood engravings of rodents. To take actual examples from the Book Arts Press illustration files are much cheaper and easier to acquire. Many of our illustration files consist of accumulation of individual examples, but we have also put together groups of similar prints all from the same book for instance gathering them in sets of nine prints or more and housing them together. The nine prints collected into an illustration packet are useful for purposes of group instruction with one copy for each of eight students or pairs of students and a ninth copy for the instructor or instructors. Thus far we've assembled about 140 different illustration packets representing a wide range of processes and techniques employed throughout the history of mechanical and photographically assisted book illustration. Thus, if you want to use the illustration packets to teach, say, woodcut technique, because remember we don't teach connoisseurship at all, but only the technique, you have at your disposal about a dozen different illustration packets. Nine copies of various woodcuts cut out of mid-16th century French and Italian books, some of them rather splendid. Nine woodcuts of biblical scenes from the 1596 Hamburg Polyglot Bible. Nine woodcuts from an early 17th century Italian emblem book in woodcut frames. Nine leaves from Gerard's Herbal, London, 1633. Nine late 17th century French woodcut initials nine leaves from various issues of the Gentleman's Magazine from the 1760s showing various crude woodcuts in text, and so on, leading up to nine woodcuts used to illustrate Charles Books' Journeys to Baghdad, published in 1920, and nine color woodcuts by the contemporary California artist Tom Killian. In each case, the nine prints in the illustration packets are individually housed in nine individual clear polyester folders to keep them from self-destructing during and between use. Sometimes we have more than nine examples making up an illustration packet, in which case the individual polyester folders get more than one print each. The rest of the Book Arts Press collection of prints is filed individually according to process in Bamberg-Gascoigne order. That is to say, according to the taxonomy used by Bamber-Gascoigne in his excellent book, How to Identify Prints, published by Thames and Hudson in 1986. Students can use the individual prints in the study collection in the press room on a self-instructing basis, working their way through Gascoigne's book and looking not only at the many reproductions he provides, but also at actual examples in the press room, print files of those processes. In a few cases, we have at hand actual copies of the prints Gascoigne reproduces. The publication of Gascoigne's book in 1986 has made an enormous amount of difference in how we teach illustration processes. The book provides an, organi- an organizing principle for a collection which has grown so rapidly in recent years that it now poses a major cataloging problem. Using Gascoigne's system of classification, our individual examples of prints almost if not quite catalog themselves and even the cataloging for the one hundred and forty-odd illustration packets can concentrate on the when and the where and the by whom rather than on the much more complicated matter of the how that is by what techniques they were made last week i laid out a an exhibition of some of the illustration packets and individual example files together with copies of Bamberg Gascoigne's book so that those attending my lecture could see how the system works. This display in a somewhat different and fuller version is laid out again this week in room 510 down the hall for those of you who would like to take a look at it after this lecture. I describe our illustration packets again in some detail because they are such a describable outward and visible sign of the Columbia Rare Book Program's inward attitude towards education for rare books, a conviction that the unifying thread tying together all of our various rare book occupations is the book as physical object. To be sure, we all have other concerns as well. Rare book librarians, for example, are also united by their administrative duties within the larger institutions in which they work, by their need to understand the principles of cataloging, by the urgent preservation and conservation demands of the objects in their care, and by their obligation to make their holdings known. Antigrane book dealers are interconnected by a different set of needs and responsibilities, as are archivists dealing with historical collections, conservators, preservation administrators, and indeed book collectors. But the physical book is a common concern, and it is the primary one of the programs with which I am concerned at Columbia. Establishing the principle that the book as physical object is primary is simple. Incorporating that principle into a fully articulated teaching program is more complicated. The way to teach books as physical objects is to have a lot of books around to teach with, and this frequently is a difficult matter to arrange because of the scarcity, fragility, and high replacement value of such objects. Furthermore, Simply having a copious supply of books and related objects scattered about in piles in the immediate neighborhood will not automatically ensure that this material gets into the classroom for group use or even into the hands of individual students. Thus, for nearly the past 20 years, my own principal pedagogical preoccupation has been been to try to rub my students' noses in books, literally. Literally to find ways for them to study the physical book directly from books and not merely from reproductions of them via illustrations in other books on books or via 35-millimeter slides or via photocopies or via other facsimile formats. In room 505 and 507, down the hall to the left and to the right of us, the Real Book School staff and I have laid out in formal exhibitions of some of the teaching tools and other contrivances that we've developed here for use by both groups and individuals studying the history of books and printing, and I hope that you will look at them after this lecture. There you will find, for example, the stars of the videotape from punch to printing type, our own brand-new 30-point type mold, our wonderful non-working paper mold, together with some described examples of paper made wrong, 20 copies of the first edition of John Greenleaf Whittier's The Tent on the Beach, with an explanation, and many other bells and whistles for you to look at and play with. Immediately to the left of me as I stand here is another example of same. These to my right are American cloth-bound books arranged in chronological order from the early 1830s into the 1860s and then to my left into the 1870s and 80s. Down the hall, in the corresponding bookcases in room 509, the sequence of American cloth bindings continues in chronological order until it peters out in the 1930s. Books published after the 1930s are no less important than books published before the 1930s, but students don't come to Columbia to study contemporary bookmaking. The entire run of our American cloth binding collection from 1830 to 1930 is about 40 feet long utterly insignificant in size as collections of 19th and 20th century books go and a tiny fraction of what you will find, for example, in the Butler Library stacks, about 25 feet that away behind the brick wall. The difference is, of course, that our American bindings are arranged in chronological order and that they have been selected simply because of their interest as physical objects rather than for their subject matter. Odd volumes work very well in such a collection so do wrong editions. The fifty-seventh thousand, for example, may have a more pedagogically useful binding than that of the first edition. Indigestible subjects. Privately published verse is a specialty of ours. And defective copies. A copy missing pages 454 and 455 still contains all the rest and its binding paralleling the American cloth binding collection is the British cloth binding collection, recently galvanized by a major contribution of books from the Sandgard Library, as friends of the Book Arts Press will know, given to us through the good offices of Michael Turner by the Bodleian Library, and air shipped to us uh, at no expense by Blackwell's through the good offices of Blackwell North America and Jack Walsdorf. The Book Arts Press collection of British cloth bindings is housed in both sides of room 510, 507, next door, contains the books in paper collection, again chronologically arranged, and one half of the bookcases in room 511 contains a collection of books in dust jackets, similarly set forth. Now the key to all of these collections is on the window side of room 511, presently doing duty as the Rare Books School Notion Shop, or the PE, as one of my staff members calls it, short for shoppy. This summary collection of cloth bindings, about 30 feet in length, consists of chronologically arranged English and American books, which are keyed to a 27-page typescript study guide, a general survey of the history of cloth bindings originally prepared, for Jennifer, originally prepared by Jennifer Latin Julia of the class of 1979, and since then extensively revised after consultation with Sue Allen, James Davis, and others students begin their study of cloth bindings by working their way through the Julia guide while standing in room 511 directly in front of the actual cloth bound books the guide uses as illustrative examples. I hope that you will take a look at how this system works and to that end I've prepared a little handout which lists which cloth book collection is in which room and all of the doors are open for you to look at. Please take one on your way out if you're interested in looking at these collections. All of the cloth book collections have been put together at a relatively small expense of money. We have received many gifts, and the support group of the Book Arts programs here, the Friends of the Book Arts Press, has made possible the purchase of most of the books we've actually had to pay money for without much difficulty. Figuring out how to use these materials in and outside of glass, figuring out how to rub students' noses in it, has taken a great deal more expense, though a pleasurable one, of time. The more so in that my own background, when I came to this school in 1971, was in 18th century English literature, not the history of the book, so that I had a great deal to learn about the history of the book before I could teach it. I wish I could say that I had a great deal to learn about the history of the book before I began teaching it, that isn't ever quite the way it works. And indeed, you must ask Peter Van Wingen sometime to explain my first public description of how the paper mold works, something which I attempted in the fall of 1973 when he was a student here. As I explained in greater detail in my first lecture two weeks ago... My connection with this school begins in 1970 when I was unexpectedly invited at three weeks' notice to take over a course here in the literature of the humanities. I had recently completed my dissertation at Columbia working with professors James Clifford, John Bittendorf, and Alan Hazen on the London book trade and on the development of copyright. And I was then teaching part-time as a lecturer in what Mary Dobby used to call the lower end of the vineyard in the English department teaching advanced prose composition, which is, of course, to say remedial prose composition. <laughs> Richard L. Darling, the, new dean, the then new dean of the School of Library Service, invited me to take up a two-thirds lectureship in this school in the 1971-72 academic year in order to take over Professor Hazen's descriptive bibliography class and to continue on with the literature of the humanities. And in the spring of 1972, I was offered a full-time assistant professorship in the school with a brief to develop a program for the training of rare book librarians. I had never worked in a rare book library, except as a reader, nor did I have a library degree. And for both this and other reasons, I've already described it seemed the best course to describe my own, it seemed the best course to concentrate my own teaching on descriptive matters having to do with the physical book. In particular, format and collation, the vocabulary of rare books, type, paper, binding, and book illustration. This meant that I had some things to learn. Type, paper, binding, and book illustration (laughs) not being subjects which loomed particularly large in my own program of graduate studies in the Columbia English Department. At the same time, it seemed essential for me to improve my acquaintance with American rare book librarians of whom I knew none and my knowledge of what they did for a living of which i knew nothing and accordingly i began traveling fairly extensively around this country in canada in particular visiting rare book operations and writing about them in the bibliography newsletter an occasional periodical which i began to produce as an independent venture in nineteen seventy three long-suffering bin subscribers will be pleased to know that the journal has just now had a new lease on life under the direction of Brian Johnson of the class of 79 in Blacksburg, Virginia. Expect great things. Back at SLS, in 1972, the school was fortunate enough to hire Professor Susan Otis Thompson on a full-time basis to teach the history of the book and related subjects. Our course in rare book library administration was at first taught by Kenneth Loth, head of Columbia's Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and later by Gerald Gottlieb of the Pierpont Morgan Library. In recent years, the instructor has been William L. Joyce, Associate Librarian for Rare Books and Special Collections at Princeton. In March 1972, Richard Darling turned over room 512 Butler for me to use as a bibliographical laboratory. It's now Dean Carol Learmont's office. And the Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Columbia very kindly lent us two 19th-century iron presses, an 1830 London-built imperial, and an uh, an 1843 R. Hohen Company, Washington Press, plus some old type that had been lying around here since the 1930s and 40s when Columbia University librarians Helmut Lehmanhaupt, Alice Bunnell, and others had established an informal bibliographical laboratory within the Rare Book Department, which they called the Book Arts Press. That's where the name came from. I was extremely lucky in the early 1970s in having a group of students interested either professionally or avocationally in rare books who helped me make the revised Book Arts Press the revived Book Arts Press go. They included Grace Ann DeCandido and her husband Robert, Abigail Lewis, John Peters, Doris Ann Sweet, Barbara Sutherland, Rachel Senner, Irene Titchener, and Peter Van Wingen, who later married Rachel Senner. We formed a loose organization called the Printers of the Book Arts Press and sold Christmas cards for several years in order to accumulate enough money to buy a sufficient quantity of 14-point monotype Caslon in sorts to begin bibliographical projects, Richard Darling having given us space but no money. Formal labs began in my descriptive bibliography classes in the 1974-75 academic year. Sam Streit, was celebrated at the time for his lino cut of a Doric column. A Doric column has nothing but straight lines in it. In his woodcut lab that year, among his classmates, who included John Bidwell, Inga Dupont, Caroline Schimmel, Clark Kimball, Bruce McKittrick, Charles McNamara, Alice Schreier, and many others. Quite a list, quite a class. In 1974, Maurice Annenberg gave us about 50 fonts of wood type, the first major gift to the program and one which enabled the production of posters advertising the public evening lectures that we began to sponsor on bookish subjects. The Annenberg wood type also inspired the first Book Arts Press Valentine's Day thought for 1975, which was, 60% of all mammals are nocturnal. You can see, and indeed buy, some of the more recent Book Arts Press Valentine's Day thoughts in room 511 after this lecture. And you can see some of the Annenberg wood type on the wall here, most notably in the Wyatt poster. Mr. Wyatt hated that poster. The Book Arts Press moved to its present location in room 502 Butler Library in the summer of 1975. The room up to that point had been a training classroom for the Naval ROTC, a program which did not prosper at Columbia in the 1960s. The Friends of the Book Arts Press came into existence in 1976 with 12 members and the support group's rapid growth quickly put us in a position where we could finance as many evening lectures as we could find speakers and audiences for. Soon enough, we found ourselves running an informal lecture bureau especially for visiting British speakers, helping to get the word out about prospective tours and coordinating dates. Our most recent speaker was Christopher Ridgway, the librarian at Castle Howard in York whom we met through the good offices of Nicholas Pickwood, and who spoke under uh, the Book Arts Press auspices last fall at the Grolier Club, the Canadian Center for Architecture in Montreal, the University of Vermont, Princeton, the University of Kentucky, the Art Institute of Chicago, pittsburgh bibliophiles the friends of the university of california santa barbara library the book collectors of california stanford the book collectors of california in san francisco the university of pennsylvania library and at the university of toronto as well as of course to the friends of the book arts press 14 cities in 58 days at the moment there are about 400 friends of the book arts press of whom rather more than 20 percent are close friends of the book arts press Difference is financial. In the early 1980s, we found ourselves developing a publications program. First, because of the fine printing conference at Columbia and its well received proceedings, and shortly thereafter, because of a speech given here by Bernard Breslauer in Rare Book School 1984 on the uses of bookbinding literature, which everyone clamored for us to publish, and which we did handsomely, thanks to a generous and continuing subsidy, I might add, from Roderick Steinauer of the Steinauer Press in Lunenburg, Vermont. The publication program made further progress in 1985 with the inauguration of the annual Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography and their subsequent publications. The conservation and preservation programs of the School of Library Service began in the fall of 1981 under the direction of Paul Banks with their own excellent suite of labs across campus in Skirmahorn. Our program in archives and manuscripts took a late a great leap forward in the fall of 1983 when Susan Davis and Robert Sink of the New York Public Library began to teach a two-semester sequence, a lecture course in the fall followed by fieldwork in the spring with a third course in administration taught by Bill Joyce in our regular summer session. Rare Book School began in the summer of 1983 with eight courses, two per week, offered over a four-week period. Projected capacity enrollment that first year was 120 students. In the event, we had 113, including the infants Martin Antonetti, John Bidwell, and Susie Taraba. The 17 faculty members in RBS 1983 included Sue Allen, Christopher Clarkson, Carolyn Harris, Paul Needham, Jack Parker, Daniel Traster, Michael Turner, and Michael Winship, all of whom are still with us in Rare Book School, 1989, seven years later. In 1985, we went into the business of producing our own videotapes, beginning with the three-quarter-hour presentation I mentioned earlier on hand punch-cutting and typecasting from, from punched printing type, directed by Peter Herdrick and featuring Stan Nelson from the Smithsonian Institution. The following year, 1986, we produced How to Operate a Book, with Gary Frost using a script by Frost and Me, which profited mightily from suggestions by Chris Clarkson, Michael Gullick, who will be giving a Book Arts Press Lecture here in September, Guy Petherbridge, our new head of the SLS Conservation and Preservation Programs, and again Nicholas Pickwode. In the works is a third videotape tentatively called How to Collate a Book. The school underwent a major renovation of its Butler Library premises during Rare Book School. During Rare Book School in the summer of 1986, as some of you will remember, part of the university's dowry to our new dean, Robert Wedgworth. The rest of our classrooms got air conditioning and decent furniture, and the book arts press room got, with great effort, a new floor and new type cabinets. Martin Antonetti became the lord high everything else of Rare Book School in 1984. And in 1986, the year of the SLS renovation, for all practical purposes, Lord High Everything. Her book school has, I think, been a major force in the continuing rapid development of the Book Arts Press teaching collections, providing both financial resources for their acquisition and also incentive for their development, because the much larger number of people able to benefit from them than would be the case if their use were restricted to the 20 or 30 students in our regular master's program at any given moment who have a special interest in rare books. Preparing our physical resources for classroom and individual use is a time-consuming proposition, the more so when you consider that even given the relatively large number of rare book types coming through here every year, the number of persons benefiting from their use is much smaller than, for example, the audience for a published book. Still, we have been able to acquire the resources, and we are cataloging them, and otherwise making them uh, ready for use. An absolutely ongoing process, as you will see if, as I hope you will, you look into room 502 Butler after this lecture, the Book Arts Press Room, to see some of our most recent acquisitions and gifts, and the use to which they're being put. These have been good years for the rare book programs of the School of Library Service in spacious quarters strongly supported by the administration of the school and stimulated by the presence of our conservation preservation and archives programs but we shouldn't fool ourselves rare book librarianship and its related disciplines make up a small part of a modest and unfashionable profession I want to read to you an excerpt from an application we received to a rare book school class not so long ago I've changed some of the wording slightly to conceal the identity of the author. As supervisor in the rare book department of this institution, the applicant writes, I've been responsible for the department's day-to-day operations, staffing the reading room, training and supervising clerical and student support staff, supervising photo reproduction and the department's preservation program, managing the exhibition program and preparing at least one exhibition catalog per year, doing most of the local cataloging, assisting the librarians with reference work, and so forth. Other duties is described, perhaps. The job demands a basic and wide-ranging knowledge extending from papyri to modern social protest literature. I've tried to acquire this knowledge through on-the-job training, a private reading program, and previous enrollment in rare book school. My previous rare book school courses have been selected with an eye towards exploring my interest in the book as a physical object. I found, for example, the two Rare Book School courses on bookbinding to be particularly interesting, especially for their emphases on bookbinding structures as opposed to decoration. It was a revelation to me to see how careful analysis of often very subtle physical evidence, combined with a thorough understanding of the bookbinder's craft, could yield so much information about a volume, when and where it may have been bound, why a binder may have employed certain methods or decorative elements, whether the binding was original or in original state, and the implications these findings hold for how the volume may have been sold, distributed, or used. Since taking these courses, I have in my own time been examining my institution's holdings of medieval manuscripts and early printed books for bindings that are unusual in some way, are particularly good examples of various bindings or decorative styles, or that clearly exhibit specific kinds of evidence or binding techniques. I have already given several seminars on bookbinding history to local bookbinders and conservators, and I am now working on an exhibition in which I hope to show how bindings can be analyzed and the evidence used to broaden scholarly investigations. The applicant then goes on to describe why she is applying for the particular rare book school course she is now applying for, and concludes, The course would also help me prepare for what promises to be two or three years of instability at my institution. We have been without a department head for nearly a year, and the retirement of our senior rare book librarian early next year will leave us without any librarian, with more than a cursory knowledge of early manuscripts in printed books. The library administration has displayed a marked indifference towards our staffing problems and is reluctant even to fill these positions. Our arguments that we need to recruit staff with extensive knowledge of her books, in addition to academic librarianship, are received with undisguised annoyance. By enhancing my skills in analyzing and interpreting the evidence provided by printed books, I hope that this course will prepare me for the additional reference duties I shall now have to assume. No less important from my point of view, now that our department may be entering a period of decline, would be the course's help in reaffirming my belief that a knowledge of rare books really does matter. As I said, we are part of a small, unfashionable discipline. With the close of the Graduate Library School of the University of Chicago, Columbia is the last of the major library schools located in a private research university. We are doing everything we can, or possibly more than, but our programs cannot continue to exist at their present level without an increasing level of national support. Rare book school, for example, is very successful, it is also very expensive. It barely covers its direct costs, and if it weren't for the support of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, it simply could not exist in its present form, or at its present tuition levels, at all. We do have already a wonderful base of support. We have just published a Book Arts Press address book, giving work and home addresses and phone numbers where we have them for most of the 933 people who attended Rare Book School between 1983 and 1988, plus the approximately 400 members of the Book Arts of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, plus the 200 odd survivors of my regular SLS descriptive bibliography class with whom I am still in touch, slightly over half the total number, plus the 140-odd lecturers who have delivered a total of 275-odd Book Arts Press lectures so far in a series which began with Michael Turner's lecture on collecting printed ephemera on November 16, 1972. This is, in fact, lecture 278 tonight. These categories frequently overlap, But the address book contains just under 1,500 different names and represents useful information about a great many of the most active persons in the business. Copies of the address book are not for sale. They are reserved for distribution to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. If you are a friend, you should just have received your copy in the mail, or will do so in the next day or so, not that that will do you any good if you're here. And if you are not a friend of the Book Arts Press, I hope you will consider becoming one either tonight or later in the week when the notion shop will be open again and someone will be there to take your money. The basic membership is $30 a year and there are forms ready for you to fill out and you can pick up your Book Arts Press address book tonight. A minute ago I mentioned that the address book contains the names of 933 persons who have attended Rare Book School between 1983 and 1988 inclusive. This year's Rare Book School students as such are not yet in the address book though more than 60% of this week's Rare Book School students, for example, do in fact already appear in it for the simple, if remarkable, reason that more than 60% of the students in residence this week have attended Rare Book School before, in one or another of its first six years of existence. All the more reason for you to want a Rare Book School mug. (laughs) Brand new this year, and also... Available in room 511, along with Rare Book School t-shirts, aprons, and other delights, plus a wide variety of Book Arts Press publications, as well as some used books, including some new ones, which have been donated to us for sale on such occasions as this one. Otherwise, you'll find food and potables at both ends of the hall, as well as a rogues gallery of photographs of Columbia Rare Book Program students and other worthies in action over the years in the Book Arts Press Laboratories. Look for yourself in there too. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Terry. Well, the entire floor is open. and filled with things for you to see and do. And uh, please join us uh, for a movable feast at either end of the hallway and try to meet the speaker. I have handouts, which I'll pass out on, on your way out.